You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. What's up, music lovers? Welcome to Modern Musicology. My name is Alan, and with me I have a couple of my really great friends, former Aquanetta's drummer, current solo artist, bird enthusiast, Stephanie Seymour. Hello, everybody. And music connoisseur, bass player, and dude from London, Anthony (laughs) Williams. Hello, it's good to be back. And Alan, that almost reminds me of that scene in the IT crowd where they're describing the team and, you know, it's... Genius, (laughs) Genius, <laughs> and this, and this, and a man from Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately, Rob is not able to be with us because he's, I don't know, gallivanting around Minneapolis and seeing yeah. Paisley Park Studios and all this kind of crazy stuff. So we will miss him this week. But we have a very special guest with us. Stephanie, will you please introduce our special guest? I am going to introduce to you my fabulous husband, Bob Perry who many of you might know from the band Winter Hours, and also as an amazing solo artist. Um, we met during our years running Crop Duster Records. Uh, I was in Birdie. He was in his own you know, solo band, and we were in each other's bands, and we all played together, a bunch of us. And, um, and uh, he's also a, an extremely amazing producer, engineer, mixer, um and 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 a great singer too and here he is well well thank you for that uh unbiased introduction (laughs) (laughs) right it's nice to be here thanks for having me guys well bob it's really nice to finally meet you yes after having gotten to know stephanie over the past few months it's really nice to have you on well, I've been uh, I've been lurking in the background for some of these podcasts, so uh, this is nice <laughs> to be here uh, in person this time. <laughs> okay, so my first question is about you. You mentioned what was the name of it? The record company that you mentioned that you two ran? Well, Crop Duster Crop, Crop Duster Records. This yeah, is it, the first I'm hearing about this. Oh. So, give me a little story about that. Do you want to go? You tell it, honey. You tell. So, so uh, we, Stephanie and I uh, met, uh, you know, uh, during the time we, we, we started up Crop Duster Records and it was a, a collective of groups from, from New York City and, and around the area uh, that were kind of tired of the music business and shopping demos to, to, to record companies and try to get a deal. And, and most of us had, had uh, recordings made, uh, you know, that we would have shopped or were in the process of making recordings. And, and we all, you know, got together and decided to hire our own publicist you know, book nights uh, at clubs together um, to just, you know, more than more than one uh, band trying to do it alone. Uh, It was like a collective and a cooperative. So everyone who owned like the five principal people or six who owned the label, we were actually we were on it as well. So it was like bands like, uh, you know, my band, Birdie, Bob's band, um, the other ninety nine. Um, Julia, Julia Greenberg, Greenberg James yeah. Mastro's Health and Happiness show at the right. time. James is from the Bongos. You probably know the, who the Bongos are. So, yep. So there was a, an Amanda Thorpe. So there was a whole bunch of us doing doing our thing. And um, since we all had strengths within the 
you know, I was a promotion person, like someone was good at sales. We all were able to, to sort of fill mm-hmm. a niche. So That's we had really like 12 cool. or so releases on, on the label. Wow. That's so cool. Yeah. It was I a great love time. That. I love it. It was a great that. time. It was right. But it was before the internet. You know what I mean? It was before, it was like late nineties kind of sort of mm-hmm. thing and early two thousands. So it was still, you're still plugging away, like not able to get it out on the internet. You know, you're making CDs and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny. It feels like bands started doing that a bit more in like the late 2000s um, when the internet was around to help, but before streaming had really taken off. So, you know, there was still distribution through MP3s and, and that kind of thing, but Spotify wasn't around. So you guys were ahead of the curve by, you know, five to 10 years. That's so oh, cool. Yeah. We were pre, uh, pre MP3.com and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Bob, we have talked quite a bit over our past couple of months about stephanie's current single there was a time which is amazing and everyone should go find it on spotify or Bandcamp or wherever and listen to it or youtube give it some more hits on youtube um but tell tell us about some of the things that you've had going on particularly the most recent album that you put out which is a world like this yeah that was uh i was found myself like most people uh at home during the pandemic uh sitting in front of my hard drives and, and i started looking through you know old old songs files things that were you know half baked or or you know partially done and, and and had recordings of things uh and and i got you know i started putting together a list of things that that i would you know maybe go together well for an album and then just being home during that time i, I was able you know to to uh enlist stephanie for some background vocals and things and and send out files to to uh drummers and guitar players and all the people that are on the record and and uh you know eventually it all can kind of came together it was it was all done here uh you know and and th- that that's what happened yeah yeah, it was nice to be able to, it, and the one thing that was nice was just the downtime. Of course, not why there was downtime, but there was, there was a lot of time to be creative in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there yeah, was. Right. <clears throat> I love the way that um, the music community really sort of like rallied around that time. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was such a, a weird time for humans you know and i love the way that that musicians particularly really kind of like went into action during that time and you know not only like there's so many artists that recorded new albums at that time and found new ways to record and to collaborate during that period of like isolation um but so many other artists like got online and entertained and i think it's amazing the way that the music community responded to that situation. That's that's a really good point. Is one of the things that I I learned during that time. You know, I'm pretty tech savvy, but a lot of the people I was dealing with were not. And you know, just talking like Claudia Chopek through how to set her microphone up so she could record a violin part for me in her apartment in New York. Uh, you know, it, it was great, and people were doing that everywhere. People that are, were, you know, just a singer maybe uh, couldn't do gigs or found themselves, you know, out of work and stuff. Were 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 hiring themselves out to 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 sing backgrounds or to sing parts on people's records, and it really was a, a you know there was a silver lining in the pandemic for sure for a lot of musicians. I think a lot of people came out of it much more uh, tech savvy and much more knowing how to uh, you know communicate in a new way. Uh, that they never uh, maybe even thought of before. And I think to that point, Bob, the opportunity for collaboration was incredible because suddenly you had 
people suddenly realizing you didn't have to be in the studio together. So if you wanted to collaborate with someone who was in a completely different time zone, you could collaborate with someone who was sitting there in Sydney or in Tokyo, right? Whereas normally pre-pandemic, you'd be thinking, well, I got to fly them out to where I am. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Not only musicians too, but but studio owners. Uh, you know, I have a friend Eric Gamble uh, who who owns a studio in Brooklyn, and and he works you know as a sideman for for uh, many people. Guitarist goes on 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 tour, but he he made a great album with uh, this woman Sarah Borges. Uh, you know, it, it, she would have never made that record uh, had it not been for the pandemic and uh, isolation time. And and he, you know, Eric worked with her in his studio and they were worked remotely. So, you know, he kept working, she kept working, you know, people just did what they had to do to, 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 to get it out there. You know. So Stephanie, what's something that our listeners should know about Bob that we should ask him? Bob's known for being a great, a great guitar player and he's an amazing guitar player, but he's such a great songwriter. For example, well, I'll say this, his own lyrics are simply amazing, but like he just had to come up with this thing for a, a song. What was it called, honey? It's like a song circle thing. Oh, that we did a, uh, there was a song swap, uh, but it was based on a book by Shel Silverstein uh, of poems called The Light in the Attic. And, and oh, one, yeah. my assignment for that or anyone's assignment that, that signed up for it was to either write a song about Shel Silverstein or take one of his poems and put it to music. And, and that's So Bob just takes like, yeah. boom, out of the thing. It was like... <laughs> A lightning strike of genius for this one poem, and it's just so beautiful. Any they, the people who've heard it already are just like, oh my god, it's so great, and it is. So he's got a great knack for, um, you know, um, p- putting words to melody, and also he's got such a great emotive voice. So he's not just a great guitar player, but he's a great, you know, all around kind of musician. Wow, well, That's thank all. you. That's amazing. If there is one Bob Perry song that our listeners should check out to introduce Ooh. them to his music, Bob, Steph, what song Honey, would you guys you recommend? Because that, that would be your call. What do you well, think? I, I would say since since we're about to make a video for uh, the first song on uh, A World Like This, which I co-wrote with George Usher, um, it's called Love Is Running Over Me, uh, and and it's a uh, that's the kickoff to to uh, my album A World Like This, and and it's a great song. So, good pick. Spotify, Bandcamp. <laughs> there you go. Let's move on to our weekly shout outs. Bob, tell us what you've been listening to this past week. 
Well, uh, I, I do a thing with, with uh, five of my friends uh, once a month, and it's called Virtual Vinyl. And, and we get together, and we pick an album uh, each, and, and then we, we get together and we talk about it almost kind of like something like this. So, so this past week, uh, I've been digging into the stuff, and it was uh, Dennis Wilson's album from 1977, uh, Squeeze, an album from uh, the 90s play, one that I was not uh, really that familiar with, and, and that's the great thing about this, this virtual vinyl thing we do. Um, but I've been listening to a lot of uh, Marvin Gaye lately. Uh, mm. I've been listening to... Uh, two gl- great Glenn Campbell albums that I, that I picked up at a, at a garage sale for a buck each that are in perfect condition. Uh, the Wichita <laughs> Lineman and and uh, oh uh, man, yeah, uh, well, Wichita Lineman is a classic. Oh, and Gentle on My Mind is the other one. Yeah, oh, then yeah. they're so good, and they sound so great uh, on 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 record. But uh, a new band that I just found out about, um, and I. I I'm digging into a little bit, but but I got to get into it a lot more. It's the Beths, I don't know if you know who they are, um, and they just released an album. Uh, I don't even know where they're from actually, but but it's Beths, it's really good right? stuff. B e t h s. B e t h s. The Beths, yeah. So hmm. that's something something that's on my radar for, of new stuff. Yeah. And honey, awesome. we we just watched the CCR documentary. Oh, I've heard good things about that. Yeah, it was really good. Yeah. It was like. I wasn't okay. I'm not. <laughs> I I like them and I think they're great. And I just I actually love a few of their songs. But we I kind of was blown away by uh, mm. by the amount of material they put out in such a short time. And it was like hit after hit after hit. And then they basically this is whole this whole documentary is leading up to their show at the Royal Albert Hall in 1970. Mm. And they showed yeah. the whole show, and it was just yeah. like electric. When they they performed at Woodstock. And I don't remember who it was. It was somebody from one of the other bands who watched their set from, you know, the side of the stage and said the same thing. Like they were blown away. Like they had just didn't realize how yeah. many hit after hit after hit that one band had in such a short time. And totally. they, and from what I've seen of their Woodstock set, it was amazing. Yeah. So I have to look, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing that documentary. So Stephanie, what's, what's been on your so that Radar was one, way. and the other one, um, the other thing I was wanted to mention was we have a friend, we have friends who are in a band called Psych O Positive, and it's Psych hyphen O hyphen positive. That's cute. And they've got a new single out, and it's called Red Knee Socks. Um, they are so. By the way, the Debbie Schwartz from the Aquanet is, is in this band. She plays oh, cool. guitar, and she's one of the singers. So they're really cool. Kind of, okay, as the name would imply, they're sort of psychedelic. They're sort of rock. They're sort of alt, indie, like just this whole weird mix of great things that comes together and just, <laughs> they're very hard to pinpoint because they are kind of all over the place, but it all, it all meshes perfectly. So I encourage everybody to go to Psychopositive Bands. There's no hyphens in it, just Psychopositive Band on Instagram and check out all their stuff because they are so cool. They're just so cool and they're so DIY. I love it. They just keep putting out cool singles and and stuff. And they've got they've also got some really cool merch. I've got the best psychopositive t-shirt. So <laughs> nice. <laughs> so go check out Red Knee Socks and all their other music. Awesome. Anthony. 
Well, I just looked up Psychopositive and they describe themselves as primitive, psychedelic, high-energy cave punk. <laughs> hey, and... so they oh are my gosh. close. <laughs> that makes me want to listen right now. Yeah, I'm immediately thinking that I'm going to be checking them out after we're done with the show tonight. Awesome. So on Monday night, I saw Bloody Wood uh, play live yes. at the Masquerade. And for anyone who hasn't previously heard me ramble on about them, they are an Indian heavy metal band who combine some of the new metal scene of the early 2000s with Indian folk music. It's really, really interesting. Um, and it was just a crazy, crazy show. Uh, you know, normally heavy metal crowds are not particularly diverse. And this one was a lot more diverse than I've seen, um, particularly in the South. And um, it was just the energy was high. Everyone was jumping. I stayed out of it, but there was a circle pit going at one point. Uh, it, it was fun. And um, that that's one of the most entertaining shows I've been to. I, I wouldn't say it's in like my top five of all time, but the energy level was just so good. Wow. So ever since then, I've had their album on um, repeat until my partner told me, please stop playing it. <laughs> so that came off a few days ago. And um, I've occasionally listened to it on headphones so that she doesn't yell at me. But in the meantime, I've also been listening to The Pineapple Thief which is, uh, for those yeah. of you, for those of our listeners who are regulars, you've heard me ramble on about Gavin Harrison, who I firmly believe is currently the best drummer in the world. And The Pineapple Thief is one of his other bands uh, that he's perhaps lesser known for. Uh, he joined it, I don't know, five or six albums into their career, but he was the kind of gateway. And they're just really good. They're kind of that weird intersection between kind of, 2000s indie music and progressive rock and it just works really really well um so you, i've really you, really been enjoying them you sent me that wicked cool video of them yeah there's a live video for in exile um Drumming. which i sent over to alan and staff and whew, whew, yep. it's so fucking good <laughs> And then yeah. today, and, and I'm for those of you listening can't see it, but I'm wearing a t-shirt. I've been listening to a little bit of Bastille today. Um, That's so awesome. I actually, the singer from Bastille was at my high school. He was two years above me. Um, was actually pretty quiet. None of us knew he was a musician. Um, <laughs> but um, been enjoying them and saw them here in Atlanta a few years ago. So anyway, that's everything I've got, Alan. How about you? Well, anything that I was listening to this past week is now completely irrelevant because this afternoon, so I don't think I've mentioned it on podcast, but I've been sort of under the weather for the last few weeks and I haven't been able to get out and do things. And a little movie called Moon Age Daydream opened mm. three weeks ago and I haven't been able to see it until today. Mm -hmm. So for anybody who doesn't know, this is the, it's a new film about David Bowie. It is not a documentary. It's not a life story. It's more sort of like a, it's hard to describe. It's sort of like a, like a view into his creative mind and it's psychotic and it's chaotic, which he talks about a lot. So the whole thing is done by like, he narrates this film. It's all from interviews and sound clips of him. And um, it mixes Lots of footage, mostly from the 70s, some 80s, and a, like a smattering of things from the 90s and 2000s. Um, but it really sort of like gives you this window into who he was as an artist. Mm -hmm. And it's crazy. It mixes 
footage from all these different eras along with some footage from other things like 2001 and Clockwork Orange and, you know, just all these uh, metropolis, just things with imagery that sort of fits in with the narrative that the film is sort of telling you. Um, but it's beautifully done. I mean, just amazing. So um, I'm glad that, Steph, you gave me some recommendations for new things to listen to this week. Actually, Bob, too, because otherwise I might just be listening to Bowie all week. And that might be what I would say next week for and my there's nothing wrong out. with that. No, there is not. <laughs> wow. Since, I have, we have to see that now. That sounds amazing. Oh, my amazing. gosh. It is unbelievable. It's so You just come out feeling inspired to be creative. God, I can't wait to see it now. Oh, my God. It's amazing. And I will be going again, and I will be dragging Anthony to see it with me. So. <laughs> All right. Not that much dragging would be required. Is it only in the theaters, or is it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, but it's been though. playing for three weeks now, so it, it, might, it might not be too long before it's like out on streaming or DVD, but I haven't seen a date for that yet. So, But I will be sure to announce it here when that comes out. All right, so we're going to take a very quick break. Um, and when we come back, we are going to be talking about the albums of 1972. So stick around. We'll be back in 30 seconds. So how do we describe this show? Like, what's really going to grab people's attention and make them tune in? Nerdgasm for your eargasm? What? The space must flow to be in the know. Um, Don't be a willow. Grab your pillow. But that one doesn't even make sense. All right, stop. Snag a seat and listen. The nerds are back with a brand new edition. No! Uh, okay, then. The Blurred Nerds Podcast. France raves, reviews, recaps, and other bits of random fandom. Well, see, that's perfect. You should have just led with that one. Resistance is futile. Listen to the Blurred Nerds podcast right meow. Fine. Make it so. Okay, welcome back. This week, we are going to be turning the dials of our musical time machine back 50 years to talk about the albums of 1972. As we were talking about earlier, before we started recording, 1972 is a weird year. It's very, it's sort of a transitional year. You have a lot of new things that are coming in at that time, but there's still some holdover from the 60s and even from the 50s. We get new albums in 1972 from Elvis, Jerry Lee Lewis, Roy Orbison, the Everly Brothers. These acts that are you know, thought of as 50s acts are still active and still recording in 1972. Um, but when you look at some of the things that debuted that year, um, it's interesting that you get the first Michael Jackson album. You have the first Eagles album, which was enormous that year. The first Jackson Brown, Jerry Garcia puts out his first solo album. Blue Oyster Cult, oh, their yeah. first album comes out of 72. So this is a really weird year where like all these different styles are sort of like, you know, new things are coming in and old things are, you know, starting to die away. So let's talk about some of the things that you guys really stood out to you in 1972 as significant. Bob, you want to go first? Sure. Uh, one of my favorite artists of all time uh, put out one of my favorite records in 1972. Uh, Rod Stewart's Never a Dull Moment. I'm a huge Faces fan. Uh, and mm. He's got a lot of the uh, uh, faces on Ronnie Woods all over this record. Um, you know, quite a, quite a uh, You Wear It Well it was a huge hit from this record. Um, uh, it's just one of my favorite records of all time. Um, uh, also, uh, I tried to pick the not 
not uh, obvious ones for for this list. So I, I stayed away from Exile, but that's one of my favorite records of all time. Oh yeah, it's classic. Uh, you know, Ziggy Stardust is one of my favorite records I'm of sure all we'll time. We'll be talking about that. Ziggy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Carly Simon released a great record in in '72. You're so vain, huge hit, uh, big star, number one record, great, great record. Ballad of El Goodo uh, in the street was used on that '70s show. <laughs> it's interesting too because when I was looking over the list of releases from that year, big star kept coming up. I've never heard of them. Really? What? What? I, I, I mean, I don't think I ever have, and I thought that was really interesting that something you know that significant got away from me it was never yes, on my Alan, radar i can't i wouldn't i would i would like figure you for a big star guy that's interesting so i'm gonna have to be delving in a little oh deeper hell this yeah <laughs> i mean do you know i mean you probably know people that would have covered even even songs by them that you wouldn't even like september girls the bangles did that for example. oh i do know that so yeah oh i didn't know that's where that came from i knew it was a cover but i didn't know Oh, interesting. Okay, I will definitely di- dive in this week. Yeah. And speaking of uh, of debut albums, uh, Transformer by Lou Reed. He released yes. two. He released two solo records uh, in '72 uh, as a debut artist. Um, first one was just called Lou Reed, but but my favorite uh, Lou Reed album is Transformer, and, yeah. and produced by David Bowie and Mick yes. Ronson. So you know that whole that whole Bowie thing is right there for you again, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I'm going to lead off with my number one from that year, I think, which is Elton John's Honky Chateau, because yeah. I will just say that that was sort of like the, it started the streak of his uh, like six or seven, like number one U.S. albums, um, you know, going into the t- to number one. He, he also finally started using like D Nigel and Davey as his studio band rather than yep. his touring band, you know? Yep. Um, and it was like the first album to feature those three guys as, as main players. Um, but that, but I mean, well, Oh yeah. That more like that was, that was the record label. Like they, they <laughs> yeah. wouldn't let him use those, that, those guys, they right. only would hire studio musicians. Exactly. And this exactly. was the first time that they said, okay, they're, they've proven themselves. They can be on your record. Yep. And I mean, the singles on that, like rocket man, honky yeah. cat, Mona Lisa and Mad Hatters, which is one of my favorite songs, maybe of all time. My, me too. That is an incredible song. Oh, it is. So, I mean, that, that's like number, I'll, I'll do like three or something right now. So that one, if, if that's okay. Of course it is. Okay. Do whatever you want. All right. You guys are going to like the, the, the 180 here is just ridiculous. But my second pick is the Osmonds who have three records out this year. And if, if you count Jim, little Jimmy, which they still call him little Jimmy Osmond, they had four because he had a single out. He had a full record out that year called killer Joe. And Long-haired lover from Liverpool went to number one in England, but I'm not going to talk about Little Jimmy. Uh, no, I'm going to talk about Crazy Horses by the Osmonds, yes. which I think is probably my favorite of theirs. But Phase Two is amazing. Also, it has like Down by the Lazy River and Yo Yo. These came out in mm. the same year. It's this is when they were going for their harder rock kind of phase, and when Donnie's voice was changing a little bit. So they had like Jay sung lead for Crazy Horses, and but I mean. They rocked. And Meryl's voice, I mean, Meryl's got a rock and roll voice like no one's business. So I just, I they were so prolific at, during this period. And they also have a live album that came out that year, just they're from the forum. So the Osmonds is like 
I can't pick between Crazy Horses and Phase Three, but I think Crazy Horses would win. Steph, on on the note of Crazy Horses, I'm yeah. dying to hear like a full on <laughs> heavy metal version of the title track. Like, can you imagine that riff with just a bit more distortion yes. and some really pounding <laughs> drums behind it? Dude, it, it would be, be awesome. epic. Let's make that. Let's just do yes. it. Ooh, yes. <laughs> we could. Let's do All it. All of us could. Let's do it. That's not a bad idea. Okay. That's not a bad idea. All right. And then another whoop, switching it up on its head. <laughs> I'm going for a song for you by the Car- by the Carpenters. And mm. first of all, I I used to not love like the Carpenters when I was young because I thought they were geeky. But as I've gotten older, they're literally like one, she's my one of my idols, Karen. And yeah. this album, which was released in 72, continued to have, it had like six singles up until 74. So if you think of like Top of the World, which when I was mm. seven years old, that was in my gym teacher used to have a little table with a little record player on it. And he would t- put Top of the World on and we would all take this giant parachute and like walk around the gym with it and go under the parachute and do all the, but every single time he put Top of the World on. So that was my seven-year-old brain. It was like ingrained in it, but that was mm-hmm. 73 because that wasn't even a single release uh, idea for, to be released as a single until it was a hit by someone else. Lynn Anderson made it as uh, like number two in the country charts. And then they realized, oh, this is going to be huge. So they tweaked it and then they re- released it as a single in 73. But that that had like um, hurting each other. It's going to take some time. Goodbye to love. I mean, just so many. So that was it was just a, a like a spectacular album. And I'll let let Anthony or Alan take over now for a little while. <laughs> All right, I'll uh, I'll take a shot here. And I think 1972 was a really interesting year. And those again who know me know I have some real musical passions. Uh, heavy metal being one of them, progressive rock being another, and to some extent that whole 70s glam scene. And I feel like the glam scene was in its prime. The mm-hmm. prog scene was really starting to hit its stride. And you had the early ages of heavy metal um, going on. So the albums I'm going to shout out are mostly related to those three genres. And I'm perhaps going to steal Alan's Thunder because two of, in my opinion, what are the greatest glam rock albums of all time were released on the very same day. <laughs> and right. that is Roxy Music's debut which is just, it's otherworldly. I mean, that combination between Brian Ferry and Brian Eno and all the other members of the band um, whose names escape me because they're the less famous ones. Um, they just, it, it it's just the perfect sound for me. And, and that band really does trail off a little after Eno left uh, after their second album. But that first album is just, it's something else. And then on the very same day, David Bowie released Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, which, again, neither of those bands started the glam scene. Bowie was around before, but he kind of adopted it. And I think Bowie really perfected it and to some extent outshone the other other blands. (laughs) In comparison to Bowie, maybe they are a bit bland. But he outshone all the other bands in that scene at that time. And his candle, I think, burned the brightest until he basically burned out the glam scene and had to go and do something else. 
Yep. And Anthony, didn't you mention something, a very interesting fact, Anthony, about that album, about the singles released from that? Or so, wasn't that was on another? Yeah, I, I, a few weeks ago, I think I said that weren't really many. I think they maybe released one single off of it, and it was a few years later. Alan, oh, you probably know that better than I do. Uh, but I remember I found that when we were doing um, our show on B-Sides, I think. Yeah. The, the big single from the Ziggy album was Starman which was released as the album was coming out and they did the big appearance on top of the pops, which is really the thing that put the spiders from Mars on the map. Like Bowie had very, very limited success up to that point. Um, and mm -hmm. it was that top of the pops performance that really made the whole Ziggy movement explode. And the only other single that they released from that album was uh, rock and roll suicide, which came out two years later. That was so it. it wasn't even it wasn't even during the, you know this because by that point you know he had moved on to other albums, <laughs> and of course the other thing from the the glam scene that year was Slade S L A D E released their album Slade S L A Y E D, um, which had some of their biggest hits, including Mama We're All Crazy Now, which yeah. of course was later re-recorded by a, was it Motley Crue, one of those bands in oh, now it was like Anthony. Twisted sister or something like that i think it, it was, was quiet right oh quiet right okay come on people <laughs> i'm not into Alan's like you're all fired scenes, but, so, yeah <laughs> um fired quiet right so yeah I, I mean obviously i know that that entire scene has some really uh long lasting um kind of influences um and it's the anti antecedent to several of the kind of 80s glam movements but um mm -hmm. Yeah. I think 1972 was kind of the year for glam rock. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think Gary Glitter had a record out uh, that year, too, speaking of glam. He I, did, I but we, we prefer not to speak of him. I know. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> but, you know, that that whole scene, Um, there was a huge scene starting in 72, 73 in L.A. with the glam scene. I mean, I remember reading Joan Jett talking about that because she was really, really young then, but she started getting into that whole scene and, like, with the Runaways, that – yeah. That was a big influence on them. And mm -hmm. and the, uh, Susie Quattro, same thing. Yes. Right? She came yes. at the very oh, tail yeah. end of the glam scene, of the original glam scene, but, you know, hugely influenced by it. Yeah. And like um, morphed it into something else. Yep. I, I think T-Rex also had an album out in 1972. It's a long way from my favorite of theirs, so it didn't make my list. But just to show <laughs> what a year for glam 72 was, yeah. you had all of these bands at the height of their powers, or, or in Roxy Music's case, right at the beginning putting out really quality material yeah i've got a i've got a lot of things that came out in 72 that i um that i really love um and so you know uh anthony you mentioned uh your love of prog that's me of course as well and there's a couple of significant releases um in 72 the first one i want to talk about because i know that two of them are on your list anthony so mm -hmm. the one that i want to bring up is thick as a brick by jethro tull oh. which i think is so interesting because they never really thought of themselves as a prog band <clears throat> and they never really thought of themselves as a concept band but their previous album kept getting labeled as a concept album in the press and they're like but we're not that's not what we do so ian anderson finally said you know what if you're going to label us as a concept band then by god we are going to put out a progressive rock concept album to show you what it actually is when it when you see it and so thick as a brick comes out and it's basically 
one long piece. That's this is back in the LP day. So it's divided up into two halves, side one and side two. But it's this enormous piece of music that's just incredible. And they don't, there's nothing else like it in their catalog. There are other things that sort of have prog leanings. And it's interesting that in the 70s, they had a number of like American top 40, like top 10 hits with things that are in weird time signatures and, you know, use instrumentation that you would never have heard anywhere else. And, you know, they finally just like said, okay, if you want us to be a prog band, we're going to be a prog band and we're going to put out thick as a brick and you're not going to know what to do with it. Hmm. And so I think that whole, that whole album is fascinating as well as the story behind it. So we'll talk about some more prog in a minute. But Bob, what else do you have on your list? It's interesting. I had that on my list, actually. And, and mm. the reason why I have it on my list is because that was my introduction to what a concept album is. I had no idea. I was nine years old or so when that came out. Yeah. And uh, I won it on the boardwalk. And I just picked something. <laughs> I was like, I know that name, so I'll take that A-track. And I was dumbfounded. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was dumbfounded when I got home because I was like, where are the song titles? Where are the rest of the song titles? And then, right. you know, my brother explained to me what a concept album is. And that was, yeah. that, so that was my introduction. Brother Bill, thank you. Brother Bill, yeah. That's so, that's so interesting because, you know, released on LP, it's divided up into two works basically right because of brick part one and part two so on an eight track the division of that whole piece of music must have been really kind of throwing you know oh, it must have been biz- weird it's bizarre in the middle of a song where it just you know you hear that big click and then it goes to <laughs> eight tracks man that was the yeah. best invention ever <laughs> What else, honey, do you have on your list? Well, speaking of Prague, uh, Close to the Edge. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite bands of all time. Uh, I saw them in Madison Square Garden in the late 78, I guess, and the wow. first time they played in the round. Uh, yep. Uh, fantastic. That was on the Tormato tour. It right? was the Tormato tour, yep. yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I just I just love uh, Yes and uh Early Genesis with Peter Gabriel. So Foxtrot came out uh, yeah. came out in seventy two as well. Um, yeah. on my You're list. Speaking Anthony's language. Yeah. There. <laughs> I mean, Suffer's Ready is is. I mean, obviously that's the kind of crescendo and the high point of the album. But overall, that's just such a strong album, Bob. I'm glad you brought that up. Hundred percent, brilliant album. And Suffer's Ready is the thing that you go to because it is like, I think Genesis like it's the pinnacle of their prog statement basically but the opening track watchers of the skies holy (sighs) shit i love that song so much i remember probably about 15 years ago i saw a genesis tribute band in london called genesis in the cage and they opened with watcher in the sky and um it, it sounds great live yeah a watcher of the skies i should say what, yeah this. exactly oh man that's such a good album speaking of genesis i'm going to talk about steely dan it has literally, oh, literally nothing to do with that at all i just you know <laughs> <laughs> what to create a segue where none yep. exists <laughs> there's no segue <laughs> at all um no but i wanted to talk uh, to, to mention can't buy a thrill which is I love that album. Um, 
to do it again, dirty work, reeling mm. in the years. I mean, mm-hmm. I know that I don't, I'm not like much of a guitar person. Like does, uh, what's how, how would I put that? Like, I, I don't pay attention to it as much as I pay, would pay attention to the drums or something in a song. I don't know. But that solo, I could like sing it to you right now because I know it by heart in for, from reeling in the years. It's so, it's so insane. There's actually two in that song and they're both equally insane. So mm-hmm. um, that album is one of my faves. And um, also um, Linda Ronstadt, who put out her self-titled, which you, you reminded me was her third album, not her first album, right. but it was her third. And there's, it's funny because there's a couple of them in 72 where you're like, hmm. it's, it's a self-titled album. And yes. it's not the first. Paul Simon did the same. He's self-titled, same same thing. But um, she, you know what's cool about this one is that she uh, has a single Rock Me on the Water, which Jackson Brown wrote. And he hmm. actually had his first album out that year, which that was also on his record. And he wrote that. Yeah. So it was there, like Bob, you were saying there was a couple, um, so maybe it was not that year specifically where a couple people had the same single out at the same time, just different versions of it. I think we were saying like, you know, early, that early period, late sixties, early seventies, a lot, a lot of that stuff happened where, where, you know, maybe not as common today, but, but people would cover each other's songs, you know? Uh, yeah. And they'd be out at the same time. So but that's a fantastic record with uh, like Rescue Me on it, a great cover of all I Fall to Pieces. So, mm. and, and the players on there, you know, Don Henley, Glenn Fry, um, J.D. Souther. Dan, I mean, there was a million great musicians on there. So that's just, that's another super influential record, I think. I mentioned heavy metal and there are yeah. really three, four albums that year that I think were huge. Um Deep Purple, of course, put out Machine Head. Smoke on yeah, the Water came from that, as well as Highway Classic. Star. They also put out a live album made in Japan, which I think is one of the kind of big heavy metal live albums. That version of Child and Child in Time on there is, whew, mm-hmm. I can't even think of another way of putting it other than, whew, whew. <laughs> um, Uriah Heep put out Demons and Wizards, which I think is a great album. I saw them supporting Judas Priest um, maybe four years ago here in Atlanta, and they put on a great show. And uh, when when Gypsy Queen came on, that was just awesome. Um, but, you know, Easy Living, huge, huge track from that album. Really, really, probably their best known track, I would say. And then, of course, the last one I wanted to mention from the heavy metal scene that year was Black Sabbath with Volume 4. Volume 4. Volume 4. And, you know, I tend not to like that album as much as the first three. Um, I agree with you. It's solid. I mean, Snowblind is a great, great track. Yeah. Changes is not the kind of thing you would normally expect them to be playing but it's a wonderful heartfelt ballad of a track and yeah yeah, it doesn't quite fit um but it's a good track in its own right yeah um and you know after after volume four for me was where they started going into a little bit of a decline until they're reinvigorated in the 80s by in the 80s by uh the entrance of mr ronnie james dio but um Mm -hmm. You know, some absolutely classic metal albums came out that year that I think really, really have been very, very influential on on the scene. 
I, had, uh, I have on my list, uh, I don't know if it's considered heavy metal or so much, but uh, School's Out, Alice Cooper came out that year as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've got that on my list. That's almost That's like glam metal in a way. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Shock rock. Yeah. Yeah. Theater. Yeah. You look at Alice Cooper and definitely hugely influential on, as you say, the theatrics of it. Without Alice Cooper, you don't end up with uh, bands like Wasp or Marilyn Manson or, or what have you that Twisted took sister. that same right. thing and took it to the nth degree. Mm hmm. So, Stephanie, earlier you were talking about people covering each other's songs and um, Jackson Brown. I think it's really interesting. The Jackson 5 put out an album that year called Looking Through the Windows, and they covered Dr. My Eyes. I was going to say was that. <laughs> the first single from Jackson Brown's first album, which came out like five months before yes. the, the Jackson 5 album. I think that's crazy. It's crazy. They there's there's another cover on that album, uh, the Dat Jackson Five album, I believe. Uh, I can't think of it now. Anyway, yeah, that that is really weird that 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 crossover kept happening. I mean, that was a big year for Jackson Brown. Yes, like just out of the Jeez. gate, he's got songs. He's got his own album, and then songs on other people's albums at the same time. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, a lot of publishing going on right there. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> okay, so um, one of the ones that I want to make special mention of, um, since a lot of the prog and the metal stuff has been covered, is my one of my favorite bands, and that's Fleetwood Mac. And this goes, you know, back before the, the big years when Lindsay and Stevie were in the band and they were having top 10 hits and you know they were the biggest band in the world and had recorded the album that was going to be like the biggest selling album in the history of recorded albums and stuff so this is the lineup prior to that yeah. um and the album was bare trees and yeah. this is one of my absolute favorite fleetwood mac albums um before this is the bob, this is the bob welch era right exactly yeah yeah and i love Post peter green and and yeah yeah See, and, and it's funny because I think of it as the Danny Kerwin era because I'm a huge Danny Kerwin fan. I think the stuff that he wrote and sang in Fleetwood Mac is every bit as good as what Lindsey Buckingham did, you mm -hmm. know, a few years later. Um, I think Danny, he was a young kid. He was, you know, like everybody who was in the early Fleetwood Mac, he eventually went insane and, you know, left oh. the band. I mean, it's, it's, their history is ridiculous. Yeah. But Almost he as was bad one as of those, Floyd. <laughs> but he was just one of those, like, just genius kids who was a great player, a, a, had a lovely voice, a really good songwriter. And I'm, I think that the stuff that he turned in on Bear Treats, which was his last album with the band, is the best stuff that he did. And the the interplay between the material that he delivered, plus Bob Welsh, plus Christine. I mean, I think this is one of the best albums they ever did. And I sort of think of it up in terms of Rumors and Tusk and those other later, much bigger albums. But um, Great Danny, one. yeah, Danny had this, he had four or five songs on this album. But there's one called Dust, which is extraordinarily beautiful. And it's one of my favorite Fleetwood Mac songs from their entire 50 years. So if anybody's not as familiar with uh, the stuff before Lindsay and Stevie, I would highly recommend 
um, five or 10 of those albums from before that, but Bear Trees is top of my list. I absolutely love it. And of course, it was produced by Martin Birch, who would later go on to be thought of as one of the go-to rock and heavy metal producers uh, throughout the 70s and 80s. And he did tons of stuff for uh, Dio and Iron Maiden and Black Sabbath and Lorister Colt. And so he goes from this sort of like, you know, mellow Fleetwood Mac thing into the just exploding into the world of rock and heavy metal. So he's an amazing, amazing producer. You guys, let's switch gears again and go to Stevie Wonder. Okay. Yeah. Take us there. Take us there. I mean, this is, is now, does anyone know if this is a debut album? Because I don't. Oh, no. Okay. It wasn't. Been around for quite a while. Okay. So then we're going to edit that. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. (laughs) But I mean, this has got superstition on it. So (laughs) this is like a giant, like, it just blew doors open. I think, you know, this was, uh, it, I don't even know what to say about this record. It's just said so influential on so many people and so many art artists that followed. I think Oops. he wrote Steve. I think he wrote superstition with Jeff Beck, right? Is, is that, uh, that was. Did he? Yeah. Jeff. Beck yeah. Was I think the story goes? I'm going to have to check this, but I think the story goes that Jeff Beck and Stevie Wonder were in the in a studio together, and Jeff Beck started playing something on the drums, and Stevie like put that riff to it, and then they they kind of created the song. Wow! Yeah. Well, and that same album had the the, the second single was "Sunshine of My Life," uh-huh. which was enormous. I mean, that was there was no stopping Stevie Wonder. In the mid seventies, he was just a hit machine. Yeah, and it's really at this point that um, Motown sort of gives him complete creative control over his right. albums. Like they weren't, you know, Motown was a factory, and there were only a few artists who had the freedom to do what they wanted. And uh, Stevie was one of those. Marvin Gaye was one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's at this point that they say, you know what? We, we we do think you know what you're doing, so you just go and do it. And that's when you start getting some of those incredible classic albums from Stevie Wonder throughout the mid-70s. He is just unstoppable. Just think about how young he was, too. I mean, mm. so, so the talent and the, the yeah. age, it's just, it it blows my mind. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He was an amazing dude. Well, I shouldn't say was. He is an he amazing dude. He is an amazing dude. <laughs> but... At that time, yeah, he was just incredible. I mean, he, you know, people think of Prince as that sort of embodiment of music that he is like, you know, just overflowing with talent. But I think that was Stevie Wonder before Prince came it's along. Definitely what you're I 100% think that, right. Yeah, absolutely. He was just, there was nothing he couldn't do. No, it's like right, music was, flowed out of him. Like it, it was yeah. like magic kind of. Exactly. It, it's funny. I always remember reading about a uh, an interaction between Stevie Wonder and Glenn Hughes, who, of course, would go on to be in Deep Purple. And he played Stevie something he'd been working on. And Glenn is a huge, 
huge um, kind of blues and funk inspired musician. And apparently Stevie Wonder broke out into this huge smile and said, you listen to my music. And Glenn <laughs> kind of went, well, of course I do. I mean, you're Stevie Wonder. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Um, before we move away too much from Stevie Wonder, I do kind of want to like just mention some of the other soul albums that were uh, that were happening in 72 because there's a lot of really significant stuff like Al Green releases Let's Stay Together. Oh my yes. gosh. It's on my list there. Eh? Aretha's Amazing Grace. You know, LaBelle's, yep. I think the, I think this is LaBelle's second album, Moonshadow, which um, Moonshadow is a, is a cover of Cat uh, Stevens' song and it's insane and it's like mm. nine or ten minutes and uh Patty goes off on this weird diatribe about having your body parts cut off. And, you know, oh. if you did, if you didn't have any hands, you wouldn't be able to give any hand jobs. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Miss Patty? <laughs> I mean, it's Ms. insane. <laughs> um, oh, I love Miss Patty. No, don't get me wrong. Oh. But um, they also, the album opens um, and most everything on the album is written by Nona Hendrix, who I think is just a genius but they open the album with a weird cover of the Who's Won't Get Fooled Again. It's <laughs> insane. Um, but you have Billy Preston, Music in My Life, which okay. had his one of two like big top five singles in America. It'll go around in circles. Yeah, oh yeah. Man, I love that song so much. Um, Funkadelic, you have oh, James yeah. Brown is still James Brown is still putting out albums. There it is which had um, a couple of big songs on it, uh, Talking Loud and Saying Nothing, and King Heroin, which is basically a poem that he wrote about the dangers of heroin abuse. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> a, it's a weird, weird song. But it was a, it was a great year for soul. Um, I'm wondering yeah. how I missed Funkadelic. And, oh, man, Funkadelic. I'd completely forgotten they put out an album in 72. Yeah. All right, who wants to go next? I'll switch gears if you want uh, switch and, and, and bring up uh, a Sandy Denny record uh, hmm. from from 1972. It's just called Sandy. That's right. Uh, <laughs> Sandy. But, but it, it's it's got uh, a cover of a Bob Dylan song on it. Tomorrow is a long time. Uh, and, and the first track on this, I'll Take a Long Time, is such, such a great thing. I mean, she's got a, a, uh, a tragic story. You know, she died you know uh i guess drunk falling down the stairs or something like that but but uh you know uh richard thompson is on this record and and a lot of the fairport guys dave swarbuck's on it um it's it's you know linda thompson on it as well Mm. Uh, alan toussaint did all the brass arranging on on this record so so um i highly recommend listening to this if you like that kind of stuff if you like fairport convention at all the the sandy denny solo records are, are fabulous they're really wonderful there that's a cool one i'll i'll throw in uh we mentioned it just a little while ago but paul simon with his self-titled second album um and it had uh mother and child reunion uh me and julio down by the schoolyard there's there's like a saint in an insane amount of talented people on this record when you look at the credits it's just mind-blowing but like hal blaine's on it uh like sissy houston um, so I thought, I think that's another really, uh, sort of like the folk rock kind of vein, I guess you would say, but I don't really know how to pin, pin, pinpoint or pigeonhole him, but you know. Yeah. I, I mean, I think folk rock kind of sums it up. 
Yeah. I think, you know, certainly Simon and Garfunkel, that's what most people think of them as. And I think yeah. his like 70s solo stuff wasn't too far removed from that. I think he gets a little farther removed from that when he gets up into, you know, some of his big 80s albums. Sure. You know, Graceland, Graceland and all that stuff where he's yeah. really working in um, world music uh, influences and things like that. But yeah, I mean, I think. Yeah. Mother and Child Reunion does kind of have this, the beginnings of that, yep. though, with the, the especially well, the big backgrounds and the, that almost yeah. upbeat, you know, the reggae-ish beat. And, and Julio, too. And Julio. Yeah, yeah, yeah true. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. 100%. Yeah. yeah. So you, you do sort of see the origin of that stuff that he really pursues in the 80s. Yeah, that's a good point. Yep. That's awesome. Anthony, you got anything? You know, I've mentioned everything I wanted to mention. I'm out. What? What? Yep. I am too, actually. I because I, I did have Ziggy on here, but um, ah. we talked about Ziggy. Well, Honey, so do you have more? The rest of the yeah. show is all me. <laughs> I've got one yeah, more you, yeah. that sure. that I don't want to forget about. Uh, yeah. All the young dudes, Mata Hoople. Yeah, right. baby. Right. Speaking yeah. of Bowie, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Bowie, Lou Reed, you know. Uh, <laughs> Because the Sweet Jane is on there, um, you know, mm-hmm. with just you know Mick Ralph, uh, guitarist who goes on to you know uh, Bad Company later on. Uh, I mean, you know, Anthony, are you a, a Mata Hoople fan at all? Does that fit into your uh, wheelhouse? A little bit. I, I've <laughs> I've delved, um, I've dabbled, <laughs> but I mean that they're not one of my you know go tos. But I normally enjoy them when I hear them. All right, put it like that. Well, then back to Alan. So I guess the last, well, there's two last ones that I want to throw in real quick. One is Styx puts out their first album, yes. um, which is completely unlike anything else Styx ever did for the rest of their career. It's sort of proggy. It's sort of, it's just weird. And um, it's probably my least favorite Styx album. I, I'm a big old Styx fan, but um, just because it's so strange, it's just not your typical Styx output. It's just wacko. Um, but other than that, it's so that was the first Sticks album. What ends up probably being sort of like the last of the mainline Jefferson Airplane albums called Long John Silver. This is after um, they did an album the previous year called Bark. And both of these are after um, Marty Ballin had left. So you don't have that Ballin influence. You don't have, you know, some of those uh, big songs. He comes back in the in the first iteration of Jefferson's Starship. But at this point, he's not around. You have Grace Slick, who's uh, coming in much more in a leadership role, um, where she's basically singing every song, just about, except for the ones that she shares lead vocals with Paul. Um, Paul Kantner um, writes uh, and, and contributes a couple of really great songs, Twilight Double Leader, and one called The Son of Jesus, which was really controversial at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Yorma Kalkinen, uh, does a song and everything else is basically grace. She writes, um, the lyrics on pretty much every song, uh, co-writes the music on just about every song. Um, so it's not too far removed from a grace solo album. And it's at this point that they start to sort of break into individual, um, not only just solo albums, but albums recorded by different combinations of different people that don't go under any band moniker. So they're still sort of like in the, they still sort of fit in the chronology of Jefferson Airplane, but they're albums that are credited to Paul Kantner and Grace Slick. Or there's a Paul Kantner album, which he used 
the under a group named Jefferson Starship, even though there was no band called Jefferson Starship yet. That would come huh. a year or so later. Um, so there's all this like all these people just come in and they just record albums and um you know some of the grateful dead are in them and some of the uh, crosby souls and nash are in them and they just all sort of like intermingle wow and they I'm just so release all these, all these crazy albums like um sun fighter and all these kind of just great 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 records before they actually finalize as jefferson starship a few years later so it's a really chaotic but really interesting period of the band and Long John Silver is the last album under the name Jefferson Airplane until they reform in 89 after Grace Slick gets fed up with the Starship nonsense and she yeah. leaves the band and they're like, well, let's do Jefferson Airplane again. And they put out a really great album in 89 that I really love. But Long John Silver, man, that was sort of the end of the road for the original Airplane. Wow, that's crazy. a wild story. I didn't know it's, it's all crazy. that. It's so in, it's so difficult to keep up with all the stuff that they were doing at that time because none yeah. of it was under any kind of band name. So there's no way to like, you know, Paul Kantner is on pretty much all of it. So if you just follow his path, you'll get mm -hmm. to every one of them. <laughs> Jeez, wow, six degrees yep. of separation of Paul Kantner. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so Alan, any, before, before yeah, we ahead. wrap up, can I talk about not necessarily albums, but can I talk about some of the significant musical events of '72? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's a good one because I wanted to do that too. Yeah, go ahead. So, in January '72, Pink Floyd, yeah, played the entirety of "Dark Side of the Moon" for the first time a year before the album would be released. Yeah, so that's I crazy. Always, I always thought that was pretty cool. I, I can just imagine it was um, at the Dome in Brighton in South England. And I can just imagine the reaction of the audience going, what the hell are we listening to? Because none of them will have ever heard any of those songs before. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you go see a band and like, we're going to play a new one. And the audience is always like, uh, <laughs> the whole right. album. <laughs> yeah, but this, this new one is actually 45 minutes long. Yeah. yeah. So, so settle in, folks. <laughs> yeah. um, Paul McCartney, Yep. Uh, took Wings out for the first time. Oh. That was one of the ones I was going to bring up. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously we mentioned Bowie and he opens the Ziggy tour as yeah. well, which he bizarrely starts at a pub in Tolworth, which is just outside of London, yeah. um, which is very, very small scale. Elvis and Priscilla, they separate in That's 72. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Lennon's U.S. visa expires, and he starts his three-and-a-half-year fight to remain in the U.S., wow. which is kind of crazy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, ELO make their first live appearance, and then subsequently, a few months later, Roy Wood leaves ELO just as they're scoring yeah. their first hit single. Yep. Bad timing. Uh, you got Billy Preston becoming the first rock performer to headline Radio City Music Hall. Yep. I want to, I want to mention also Diana Ross. Um, we didn't really talk much about soundtracks, but uh, Lady Sings the Blues came out, come out that year, and that is Diana's first acting role, and mm -hmm. oh, it's just yeah. an incredible film. Great soundtrack, too. And the other thing I had, and Bob mentioned Alice Cooper, ABC premiered the yeah. TV show in concert, and the first episode features Alice. Yeah, oh, wow. I remember that. I don't know if I caught that at the time or if it was in a rerun somewhere later on, but I do remember that. And that was pretty much everything I had that happened in 72. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you hit all the ones that I was That's great. A good mention. list. Well, and actually, this is, I think this is super interesting. 
the official Beatles fan club shuts down. Oh, yeah. that's yeah. that's like a sign of the times. So it's exactly. like doomsday. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And it's funny too because the the it, the Beatles, that's like sort of like one of those Beatles uh things. It it stops going at that point as Paul McCartney debuts his new band, Wings. Wings. Right. Yeah. Right. So it's definitely a changing of the guard. The wrap-up for the Beatles seemed to take forever. I think it yeah. was probably 73, 74 before the legal entity that bound them together was yeah. finally dissolved. So yeah. not surprised that these things are, are taking mm-hmm. some time to close down. Oh, yeah. There's one other one I forgot to mention. What? First album. Well, I think only album, actually. There may have been two albums by a band that the band wasn't necessarily that significant, but it launched the career of a heavy metal icon. Oh, Elf. is Elf. Yes. Dude, which launches <laughs> the career of Ronnie James Dio. Oh, my God. Everyone bow down. Dio. Because, oh <laughs> Elf, Elf would eventually open for Rainbow. No, yep. the, no, Elf would open for Deep Purple. Yes. And then Blackmore would steal the entire band to make yeah, Rainbow. Right. Rainbow. Exactly. <laughs> and then hired him to be his backing band. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Then from there, when Dio quits Rainbow, he joins Sabbath. Yep. He quits Sabbath and goes solo. Then he goes back to Sabbath. Then he goes solo again. Then he goes back to Sabbath. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Dio. He goes back to Sabbath, but they don't call themselves Sabbath. And and then he dies. And then he dies. Yep. Man, what a a career. And so I was hoping I was going to get to see the, there's a brand new Ronnie James Dio documentary that's in that it was sort of like it's not like a theater run it was more like a one of those fathom event kind of broadcast things where it was like one time and then one like second showing of it and that's all and that was this afternoon and I did not get to I was hoping to see that after uh, the Bowie film but I just couldn't get both of them to work out so I'll have to see that one when it comes to streaming or wherever but I'm excited Um, to see that we'll get together at my place yes sir sure will all right, so any last thoughts about 1972? Interesting year. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, very, very. So much stuff. Uh one 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 sole uh, R&B thing uh that wasn't mentioned was the uh Staple Singers uh the Altitude Respect Yourself album. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. I'll take you there. I mean, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Uh, you know, Jesus Christ Superstar uh, is mm-hmm. just Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Respect yourself. Uh, they did a, a version of that. I mean, what, right. a, what great stuff. Uh, yeah. There's so much stuff that we, significant stuff that we didn't really talk about. Neil Young puts out Harvest. Harvest. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. Mean, come on. That is a landmark album. Todd Rundgren had one. Something, um, anything. Yeah. Pink Floyd's Obscured by Clouds. Yeah. Bizarre album. I love it. Fanny had their third album, I mm-hmm. think, released yeah. the. There, so there was a, some interesting female artists that came out that yeah. year. When we were the other, talk- the other thing, just to take us full circle, was at the beginning of the show, Steph, you mentioned that you and Bob heard watch the CCR documentary. Seventy-two was, of course, the year that CCR split. Split up, man. <laughs> yeah, which is so crazy because again, it just shows that they the amount of material they had was so. It was such a short time, but the, they crammed it all into this amazing, you know, period yeah. of creativity. Right. All right. So I guess that's going to wrap it up for us for the year 1972. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, go back and listen to some of our previous ones. 
especially the one that we did with Gina Shock. Yeah. That was amazing. Yeah. I'm just going to mention that every week now. <laughs> if you haven't heard our Gina Shock episode, go listen to that. <laughs> so, Bob, tell us where people can find more about you on the internet because you know they're going to want to. Uh, well, you can go to bobperry.bandcamp.com. Uh, you can go to the Apple Music or any of the streaming streaming services, uh, Spotify. My stuff is out there. Um, my my album prior to A World Like This, uh, American Standards Phil, is also uh, available on, on Bandcamp. So, so I hope you'll check it out. And that is an amazing it out. album. Amazing. Wow. That's high praise. <laughs> well, it's so, true. <laughs> <laughs> So, Stephanie, where can people find more about you and your current single, There Was a Time? Well, you can find my everything uh, up at therearebirds.com. Um, you can find me on all the streaming platforms also. Um, you can find me at Stephanie Seymour Music on Facebook. And on Instagram, you can find me at there underscore r underscore birds, all lowercase. <laughs> Anthony. Well, as usual, you can also find me on the Watchers in the Fourth Dimension podcast, watching our way through the entirety of Doctor Who from 1963 until now. We have just kicked off the Tom Baker era, which of the classic stuff is probably the best known, particularly on this side of the pond. And uh, you can find us wherever you like to listen to your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google, et cetera, et cetera, or probably wherever you're listening to this one. Um, and you can also find us on social media at, at watches 4d, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And so I always go last so that Anthony always goes before me. So when he lists all those places that you can find his podcast, then I don't have to list all those same <laughs> things when, because I can't ever remember them all. So I've got a podcast all about Star Trek and it's called Earth Station Trek. So go to all those places that Anthony just mentioned and find that after you find Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. And I've also got a publishing company that does, we've done books about Doctor Who. We've done some, a uh, couple of novels um, by different authors uh, and a couple of other things, a children's book. And uh, so go check us out at cosmicpress.com, K-O-Z-M-I-C press.com. So uh, we'll see you again next week. We hope you'll join us then. We are out of here for now. Have a great week. Take care of each other. Be good. And we will see you soon. Rock on. Rock. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek. <laughs>